Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, everyone. And you just imagine that was some jazzy music, which is here on my Roadcaster Pro. I'll, I'll um, mix it into the edit later. Um, it is fantastic to see you. I am Bernard Hickey. This is the weekly hoon with our um, co-host, Peter Bale. G'day, Peter. Oh, Bernard, I, I, I love it when you call me the co-host. Thank you very much. It's lovely to see you. And I'm, and I'm glad to see we've, we've got our, um, our producer on board and he's roughing up the presentational quality of our um, edit even more than usual for that particular kind of gritty, gritty mateship quality that we like. Yeah, no, I haven't had a haircut and I've had a shave, yep. a little bit of stubble growing. And in the background, you can see in the um, parliamentary situation room, which I'm in, which actually yep. is just, just an office in the press gallery. Uh, we've got maps of the world and New Zealand to, you know, give you a hint. This is what we're going to talk about this week. Mm. Can we go to it's Hoku? Good. I mean, I, can, I think I can see yeah. um, Greymouth over your, over your right shoulder there. And I can see, I can see Christchurch and possibly even Wellington, actually. Yeah, this Westport, it's a yeah. bit wet. Yeah, Westport, yeah, not, not grey enough, yeah. Yeah, but one part of the word we're probably going to have to go to first is Tokyo. Can you tell us what's going on there? Yeah, it's a very interesting, well, it, it'll, it'll prove to be an interesting case. So Shinzo Abe, the creator of Abenomics, and also, and I suspect we'll find that this is potentially at the root of this, uh, Shinzo Abe's been shot this afternoon, and it would appear, based on... Um, Based on, on on some photographs, that the the the, the um, forty one year old suspect may have made his shotgun uh, look like a camera, uh, as far as I can mm -hmm. see from early early material, but that that may be somewhat speculative of me. Um, and he's been shot in the suburbs of Nara when he was on a speaking tour for a uh, mm -hmm. for you know on a, on an electoral hustings. Um, very interesting case because of course you know you know this is not really what you expect in Japan, although of course Japan has its edge of craziness and its edge of uh, controversies. Mm -hmm. And of course, Abe was um, one of the prime ministers who, who um, pushed towards an end of the, you know, the, the, the post-war um, defense stance of uh, Japan to make it somewhat more, not so much aggressive, but to um, allow it to carry a little bit more of its own weight in, in defense. And I, I, it wouldn't surprise me, we don't know yet, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was in the roots of this, um, of this attack. Yeah, it's a shocking thing. Just occasionally out of Japan, you get these amazingly shocking stories like the, the nerve gas attack. Mm. And um, when you actually look quite closely at these quite extreme right wing, and there's some extreme left wing groups in Japan, it can get pretty wild at times. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the I, wish, I, wish I should look, I mean, of course, the nerve, nerve gas attack a long time ago was, was a very long time ago. But yes, you know, there, there's there's some pretty wacky things going on there. And, uh, but this this does look, would appear, I mean, it's still very, very early days, but um, Shinzo Abe has been shot. It looks like a, a lone gunman. Um, uh, he's he's alive. He, you know, he, he, he fell to the ground. Um, there's blood in some of the pictures, but he's apparently sort of um, conscious on the way to hospital or being conscious on the way to hospital. Mm, yeah, there's various reports, some of which I've seen suggest he's he, he was not so well, but um, we'll see what happens there. And, you know, you can't imagine we're in a world where countries are being invaded, um, threats all over the place. Um, and prime ministers resigning. Um, this has been the big news of the last sort of forty-eight hours. You're a, a London yeah. resident. Who's, who's resigned? Who's 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 resigned, Bernard? Though, well, he hasn't hasn't so much resigned as said he would step aside. Are we talking about? Are we talking about Boris? We're talking about Boris Johnson, who mm. never thought he'd actually go, but at least he's the Greece city. piglet. The Greece piglet. I loved the Daily Mail, which is you know pretty pro Johnson. You've got to say. Comes yeah, out very, with this rather. headline yeah. basically saying, how is the greased piglet going to get out of this one? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, I mean, the British do leadership um, coups and it's so much better than everyone. Um, tell us about some of the, you know, amazing coverage we've seen over the last 48 hours. Well, the, 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 the one I mean, I, I, in my um, spinoff thing, which I hope you'll send the audience, because of course it's yeah, absolutely brilliant and people will. In fact, I've had some very nice feedback from it today, which was really about it, which was really nice today. But um, it was quite amusing. The, um, uh, you know, the, the there are always fabulous um, um, sketch writers and so on, but I noticed the former chief whip, Andrew Mitchell, um, described um, likened likened uh, Boris Johnson to Putin and said it's a bit like the death of Putin 
Rasputin, right? Not Putin, sorry. <laughs> There's a, a Freudian slip. It's a bit like the death of Rasputin. He's been poisoned. He's been poisoned, stabbed. He's been shot. His body's been dumped in a freezing river, and still he lives. And of course, this is what the extraordinary thing is. I mean, I, even I, who who you know worked with Boris at one point in various places, and uh, uh, and 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 have watched this um, last couple of years yeah, with yeah, yeah. an evolving sense of horror. Can we wind that back? Yeah, what well, worked with Boris? Well, well, I mean, I've been to a European Union, um, uh, European Union conferences with him, where he's been a sort of ranting when he was a journalist, not when he was the prime minister. When he's been a sort of ranting lunatic from the Daily Telegraph, talking about you know the European banana and the and the the uh, length of length of the EU cucumber directive, none of which existed, of course. But uh, the his, and his by, by the way, the best description of. Boris's character I've ever seen has come from Max Hastings. Max Hastings, yes, the great historian and former editor of the Telegraph, and his yeah. boss, basically. Yeah. He didn't he sack him at one point. He sacked him at one point. Well, no, actually, I'm not sure he did, but the, the Times, of course, um, sacked him for um, uh, making up quotes and making make, yeah make, making up quotes in a story about his own uncle, which was which was uh, quite extraordinary. So he's he isn't he is an utterly shameless person um, and and without without morals. But his supposed resignation speech yesterday was a it didn't use the word resignation it just said that the that the, the, the accused his uh, fellow tories in the, in parliament of behaving like a herd and the herd had moved on and them's the breaks and of course now he's trying to cling on until um, until october until the, the tory party conference or until a uh, a new leader can be chosen but you just never know what the grease piglet might come up with and uh, between then and now the one of the great stories is the possibility that one of the reasons he's hung on this long is so that he and um, um, uh, Carrie Macbeth, his his uh, his his wife, can have oh. a wedding can have a wedding party at Chequers, the Grace and Favor Mansion, uh, in a, in about six weeks. I was quite struck listening to a very good podcast today with the Spectator, um, uh, Fraser Nelson, the editor of the Spectator, suggesting that the idea was that um, Boris had finally realised that his future value uh, as an after dinner speaker and uh, memoir writer and so on was going to be degraded um, should he, you know, be taken out by his fingernails with his fingernails still firmly, firmly, uh, firmly anchored on the Downing Street desk. But um, I, 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 it wouldn't surprise me if we haven't seen the last of this particular fiasco. Is this the one that's titled Coffee Coffee House Shots? Is that the it one? is? Yes, yes. The Spectators Coffee House Shots is an excellent. It's not as good as ours. So they've probably got an actual <laughs> producer, Bernard. But I've just put it into the list for everyone to see. I, I, I mean, from a purely spectator point of view, so to speak, it's just amazing to watch a British um, political drama like this. And of course, Boris is just larger than life. Um, yeah, and well, it's 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 you know he isn't Trump, but he he was he's he's on the verge of being a kind of Trumpian figure. One of the most interesting aspects of this, of course, is that you know because Britain doesn't have a written constitution, um, he is rewrite he's kind of rewriting an, an unwritten constitution as he goes. And of course, in order to resign, he has to go to see the Queen. He hasn't been to see the Queen. The Queen decides who is the Prime Minister. Not and also, you know, Boris claims a mandate from the election in 2019, where he won the biggest, um, you know, the, the biggest uh, Conservative majority in 30 years. But you know, that the, the mandate is a Conservative mandate. It may well not have achieved it without him, but it is a Conservative man mandate, not a Prime Ministerial mandate. So, you know, he's he's there are some really good serious problems here, and the thing that he's corrupted most. Uh, is what um, the historian of British government Peter Hennessy calls the good chap theory, mm. which is that we're all good chaps and we you know we kind of know know when know when the game is up. You know we're brave, brave. Know when the game is up and then move on to the House of Lords. I mean, one of the greatest things this week was that it was Lord Macdonald, who's the former head of the Foreign Foreign Service, the the chief dip, chief um, civil servant in the Foreign Service, was the one who administered the coup de grace uh, by saying that Boris had lied to him. Uh, lied perpetually and was a total um, bullshitter. Uh, he didn't actually use the word bullshitter, but that's what he meant. Just to um, uh, and and really came out sent a, sent a letter both to the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner and then published it and went on the BBC almost simultaneously to um, accuse the Prime Minister of being a complete uh, fabricator of um, facts. It's amazing to see all of these resignation letters. In in public and people in real time, you know, announcing yeah, their leadership absolutely. bids and 
and saying this person is, you know, um, not my friend anymore. <laughs> just, just extraordinary. Well, I always remember the the, the one that I used to, I, I was um, connected to in some respects, but because I was in Parliament at the time, I think was uh, Peter Mandelson resigning from the Blair, from the Blair government, um, and that. Uh, Letter was was not only dictated but typed by Alistair Campbell. Um. <laughs> ah, hilarious! And he's quite a character. For those who remember him as the PR guy for the Lions, mm. who came here in oh, 2000, was he? 2005, mm. and he did this amazing thing after the first test. I think. Um, oh, that's right. Um, the All Blacks. This is back in the day when you could do spear tackles. Uh, speared uh, Brian O'Driscoll into the ground and broke his shoulder. And um, <laughs> um, Alistair Campbell decided to have a press conference after the game to complain about the officiating. And he treated it like it was a, you know, a political leadership coup. And it was like full on. <laughs> It was extraordinary. And the poor old rugby journalists were going, what is this guy? Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. Um, anyway, well, I, I didn't I didn't know that Alistair did anything with rugby because he's he's a he's a he's a rather committed supporter of Burnley. Um, mm. Now, somebody, Julian Springer there is is telling our readers that that um, uh, Alistair has a very good podcast with Rory Stewart, ah, a former right, British yeah. politician. And he does. Yeah. But nobody's allowed to allowed to know that because. Um, I think that we should model ours a little bit. On, in fact, I, I would say, having met Alistair, the bumped into Alistair the other day on Hampstead Heath in London, that um, he's modelling his podcast on ours. He's heard about oh, the yeah. Of and, course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but theirs is the number one podcast in the UK at the moment. But we could and, learn something from it. It does seem to have a producer, Bernard, but it doesn't have Robert Patman. Yeah, uh, well, that's our... That's exactly. Prof Patman. Prof Patman. <laughs> Prof Patman, welcome into the Hoon. It is fantastic to see you here. Good afternoon. I apologise for my voice. I've got a bit of a cold at the moment. But yes. very interesting comments about Alistair Campbell because he was in full cry today about Boris Johnson, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, um, he was really kicking off, as they say. Um, and it's been a big week for you. We had the um, Foreign Policy School at Otago University, yep. which is an annual shindig where everyone in foreign policy and diplomatic land in New Zealand, who is anyone, goes to find out what's happening. And we had the Foreign Minister, Danaya Mahuta, come and speak. And um, this week has been a huge week in foreign policy terms mm. for New Zealand. We've had mm. two really big speeches uh, from the Prime Minister, one in London and one in Sydney yesterday. Could you tell us what you thought um, about those speeches and what, what it says about uh, how the Prime Minister is feeling about our relationship with China, with the West yeah. and Australia? Well, I think the speeches in Madrid, uh, in Chatham House oh, yeah. and in Lowy, Lowy Institute in, 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 in Australia, uh, confirm two things. Firstly, the Prime Minister does not see the re-emergence re of a, a Cold War um, and secondly, uh, I think the Prime Minister made it quite clear that she does not feel that just because she went to Madrid and has had, um, uh, you know, bilateral discussions with Joe Biden in the United States recently, that New Zealand is suddenly losing its independent foreign policy. There was quite a bit of conjecture about that mm -hmm. in, in New Zealand. And I think she's spent, um, you know, the, her speeches both at Chatham House and Lowy Institute trying to correct that to some degree. Um, I, I think that the other thing I found interesting in the Lowy Institute speech was that she reaffirmed, which is something that's become evident for some time and gives New Zealand quite a distinctive approach to foreign affairs, that New Zealand's not just interested in, in defending the rules-based order, in which, of course, we uh, depend, but she actually wants to see it strengthened, which separates us from some of the other players, and I know we've discussed this before, but it was interesting that she said that before an Australian audience and has made the point um, that the UN Security Council has failed and, um, and by implication needs to be seriously reformed. So these are not, you know, new things, but I think it's part of the tapestry that the Prime Minister has been weaving to indicate that New Zealand's worldview hasn't changed. We haven't sort of suddenly fallen victim to having to make choices because there's a so-called new cold war on and we're not falling into the arms in the americans so do we believe it do we believe it actually robert or or is in fact the opposite the case and they haven't they haven't fought in fact fallen into the arms of the americans and um hardened up their attitude to china and she's just trying to paint a different gloss over it no i i don't i don't think uh, new zealand has um uh, you know uh, fallen into the arms of the americans because 
New Zealand does not believe there's a new Cold War on. I mean, to be quite frank, this idea of a new Cold War is pretty wide of the mark. First of all, there's no comparable um, military alliances which existed during the Cold War. There's not rival global economic systems. And and, and thirdly, and most importantly, and this point's often overlooked, um, China's rise to superpower status has been based on access to... Mm. Um, the global capitalist economy and it, it's interesting to me that it, that people seem to lose sight of the fact that when they bunch Russia and China together that China you know is happy to in a sense declare diplomatic support for Russia and I think it's made a mis- major mistake in going as far as it has in down that route but um, it's not actually willing to concede that Russia is an equal or that it's interested in the business of really seriously overturning mm. the global economic system uh, of which it's disproportionately benefited. Yeah, but it, looking at the speech, particularly to the Lowy Institute yesterday, mm. um, the Australians at least saw it as being slightly softer in tone towards China. It didn't really um, have a crack at China in the way that the joint mm. statement with um, Joe Biden did. And it's interesting, she, she, she uses the phrase, um, there's a risk of a self-fulfilling prophecy of uh, parties in the Pacific becoming isolated and divided and polarised. Mm. and essentially describes um, the the um, framing of, you know, the West versus China uh, as um, a black and white thing, mm. and that this is not actually how the real world is. It's messy, and that um, mm. we have to be careful before we start mm. um, uh, saying we're on one side or the other, or the other guy's always wrong and we're yep. always right. I, I think that's true, Bernard. I think two things there. Firstly, I think the Prime Minister does not believe that China is seriously trying to overturn the economic order, mm. which America and Australia sometimes believes that Australia is in the business of doing, uh, that China is in the business of doing. Uh, but secondly, I think, and I think it was clear in the speech that the Prime Minister gave in Madrid, uh, that for, for the, Jacinda Ardern and her inner circle, there is a clear linkage between the outcome in Ukraine mm. and um, relations with China, New Zealand's relations with China, we we have a, a sense, and the Prime Minister has been absolutely hardline and clear on this, that in a sense that the Russian invasion of Ukraine m- must be seen to fail. Uh, Russia must not be rewarded for its invasion. And by implication, I think she's indicating that sort of outcome, and she hasn't spelt this out directly, but I think by stressing the need for Russia to be roundly defeated in Ukraine, it would send an important message to China uh, that it should not enter. First of all, that would be a major defeat for Xi Jinping if that occurred. Uh, But secondly, it would also, I think, probably already exacerbate the strains which are clearly present within the Chinese leadership over the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think it would be a good outcome because it from New Zealand's point of view, because it would probably complicate Xi Jinping's decision making about any forward leaning Mm. tendencies Mm. within the leadership towards Taiwan. Mm. If Russia um, is seen to win in Ukraine, if it seizes territory and keeps it, and um, if there's a land for peace deal, which uh, Mr. Putin would willingly take, then that would be a signal for China to be forward-leaning, perhaps in its own ambitions in relation to Taiwan uh, and the Indo-Pacific. It's, it's, so it's yeah, it's a difficult I think thing I, that she's. It's a, it's a difficult course she's trying to thread, though, isn't it? To be. Oh yeah. To, to be. To be. I mean, uh, what 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 do you think are the? What is the significance of NATO having had her to M- Madrid? What is the significance of having had her? Uh, and in that that quite interesting speech at Chatham House, which was again but, quite trying to navigate a difficult thing, and then with with Lowy, she kind of just moved a little bit more positively towards China, or at least changed the tone slightly on China. But it'll be even more difficult for New Zealand if we wholly aligned ourselves mm. with the United States and Australia and the UK in something like AUKUS, mm. because we have serious ambitions about economically diversifying, and AUKUS will not help us economically diversify. Um, in the Indo-Pacific. So you're right, it's a difficult thread to sustain, 
But, you know, politics is often about difficult choices. And I think the prime minister is being given encouragement because you see countries like Germany and France, to some degree, share um, New Zealand's approach to the Indo-Pacific. They weren't particularly wildly enthusiastic about the idea of three English speaking countries mm. taking it upon themselves to uphold the rules based order when two of them uh, have flirted and sometimes some cases broken the rules based order. Um, and have baggage in the Indo-Pacific region. They, they, they're not convinced that in a, a part of the world where the 60% of the world's population, um, that AUKUS is the, the vehicle for uh, holding Chinese assertiveness in check. So I, I think one of the reasons that, uh, and let's be quite clear, New Zealand wasn't the ocean, only Indo-Pacific country invited uh, mm, no, Japan. No. South uh, Australia and Australia. Yeah. yeah. So, South Korea yeah. and Australia, really. I, I, you know, I think you're right, Peter. Um, uh, New Zealand presenting itself as an independent, has an independent foreign policy and a distinct worldview, is a difficult thing to sustain when uh, there is clear tensions between the United States and China, between the United States on one hand and China and Russia on the other. But I, I, I think that you know it's it reasonably solidly based. And we we would feel you know it wouldn't necessarily serve our interests, particularly to develop our relations with countries in the Indo-Pacific like Vietnam, mm -hmm. Indonesia, et cetera, et cetera, who share you know they they're even more conscious than we are about Chinese assertiveness, but they don't believe AUKUS is the vehicle for yeah. dealing with it. It's, so, it's very interesting. Also, yeah. but what, what do you what do you think? And possibly, you know, our correspondent in the in the Jacinda uh, Situation Room may have a may have a view on this as well. But is is this trip of these three quite quite impressive speeches? Quite um, mm. quite well covered. Quite deeply covered speeches. Are they also setting up setting up a path for Jacinda Ardern, post prime minister, as well to claim some interesting role on the international stage? That may be a possibility, but there was something that the women Nanaya Mahuta was in Dunedin hmm. at the foreign policy school. Speaking, where she speaking gave the of global centers of by the way, yeah. I, I thought she gave the most impressive speech I've heard since she. I'm not. I've been in the evidence all her speech. I haven't been present to all her speeches. I I, I thought it was a good speech, but uh, the point to note here is she said in an interview that Ukraine has been something of a catalyst hmm. for New Zealand foreign policy. And that was an interesting remark because she indicated uh, that, in a sense, New Zealand must be more active in foreign policy. And I think both the prime minister and the foreign minister now believe that there is something of a leadership void. And the United States may well have its heart in the right place. And I, I think it has with Ukraine. But we all know that there are huge domestic problems in the United States, mm, mm. not and not least resistance to supporting the Ukrainian democratic government. I mean, in Republic. So New, New Zealand and Jacinda slide in and create a new non-aligned movement. No, I don't think so. I think it's up to the small and middle powers, and there's plenty of countries agree with New Zealand on foreign policy matters to take up more responsibility. This and is I a think... very interesting thesis that you've put forward before, uh, Robert, that I quite like, I'm quite interested in. And I'm, I'm not sure, have you have, have you written much about this? Because it's with also without being interrupted by me all the time, but you know, this idea of a, of a sort of coalition of, of the willing, um, which which requires perhaps a, a person with Jacinda Ardern's charisma to unify it to some extent. Uh, well, how how real be... is that? Well, I think it's happening. I, I, I think, you know, the only thing, the thing that strikes me, Peter, is when you talk to colleagues from overseas, the tremendous respect that the prime minister has internationally. Mm -hmm. And I, I think in, we in New Zealand underestimate it because we do not see it um, in the way they do. And I, I think the prime minister is beginning to realise this, hence the flurry of foreign policy activity recently. Uh, and I think the comments by the foreign minister that, you know, we, we've got to become more active. Uh, in a sense, I think the realisation, and I don't think it's confined um, to New Zealand, I think part of the discussions between uh, Anthony Albanese and Jacinda Ardern in Australia seems to be a recognition that small and middle powers have to work more constructively together mm. to shape the international order, because it's an international order that can't be fixed by great powers acting alone. Yeah. Uh, if they do, could, do, they would, and they can't. 
so, which is which is the answer which is the answer about Ukraine. It's really interesting. Mm. Do do you think, Robert, that um, the prime minister's profile and popularity in these international circles means that um, you know if there was a position that came up, and I I see that the uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, the former Chilean President Michelle Bachelet, is actually not going to stand for a second term. Mm. Whether you know we could see a Jacinda Ardern pop up at the UN as the High Commissioner for Human Rights or something like that? Oh, look, I I, I think that's an absolute possibility because uh, I don't know how long the Prime Minister wants to remain in her current position. Um, but I think whenever she decides she's had enough of that position or leading the Labour Party, um, there will be no shortage of job offers internationally. I mean, she's still relatively young. She's shown. I mean, this is something that I think sometimes is lost, sometimes lost here in New Zealand because we get caught up with the hurly burly of everyday politics. But one of the things that makes a big impression on international observers is the fact that she responded to three pretty big crises mm. in the space mm. of two or three years in quite an impressive fashion. And she's shown to have quite a cool head. She, as one German diplomat put it to me not so long ago, the thing that was really impressive about the the way she handled the Christchurch terror atrocity is that she combined empathy with decisive action. Yes, and um, that did make a big impression. It was a Washington bit more than thoughts and, and prayers. Yeah, yeah. Now, just to get back onto the um, you know the the, the contest that's going on, uh, I found it really interesting to see the head of MI5 and the head of the FBI, um, and the guy from the MI5 looked like he just. Um, come out Sticked of Oxford. Out of James Bond. It was about, yeah, yeah it was about 13. But anyway. Bernard, um, that's, that increasingly happens. Do you find that happens with oh, cops as well now? <laughs> yeah, I know. Everyone looks younger than me. Um, so MI5 and FBI, the two heads come out, joint speech in front of a bunch of businesses, and then just lay it out and say that China is engaged in large scale corporate espionage, attacking you as business leaders in the Western world, you know get ready for it, prepare for it, um, and we're going to try and help you. What did you think of that sort of uh, joint speech, which, uh, um, you know, it's not often you see such high-profile people who are normally have an incredibly low profile, so to speak, come out in public and say stuff like that. Yeah, there's, there's overtones of the sort of declassification of intelligence in relation to Ukraine mm. that we've already spoken about. Now they're saying uh, MI5 and the CIA... Um, the US intelligence community that we know what you're up to China we know that you're in the business of espionage and stealing uh, where I'd slightly where, where there was a slight tension in what they were saying however was on the one hand they were saying that China's in the business of you know cyber espionage on the other hand they they were also asserting in the same breath that, that China's the most formidable threat to the current global economic system which it didn't quite add up really because one of the reasons they're seeking mm -hmm. to engage in cyber espionage is so that they can increase their leverage in the existing economic system. I don't see any evidence that China is serious about um, undermining the economic system, which they've done so well by and which they've got to superpower st status. Uh, it, you know, I just thought there was a bit of a contradiction. Yeah, there, but, but there's a few are, critical. I mean, there's a few critical areas though, Robert, aren't there? But you know, yeah. quite a, quite a lot of that story was about. Um, intrusion into Taiwan and into yep. into into you know people like the Taiwan semiconductor industry, it's into oh, yeah. uh, Intel, you know it's Microsoft. It's really very much seeking those critical areas of missing technology and missing missing skill, um, whether it's nanotechnology or or but particularly the ability to build these super high end chips. And I agree with you, Peter. Um, sorry, I think I, I think they were really saying we you, we know what you're doing, China. And they, they, and there's no doubt about it, China is being very active in these areas. But why is China being very active in these areas? Because it wants to, if you like, um, close gaps in what it sees yeah. as its position Critical in gaps. the global yeah. economy and make more money. Mm. It's not seeking to overthrow the system. It's seeking, if it can, uh, to close gaps in what it sees as its position in that system and uh, increase, increase its leverage within the global economic system. One of the interesting points, though, there is that for a long time, a lot of Western companies would try to get mm. into China. They would mm. take their IP into China, try to um, sell into the domestic 
consumption base inside China, as you know, this was um, you know a billion people who were just about to join the middle class. Of course, we want to get in there and sell our stuff to them inside there. But increasingly, uh, with this sort of warning about how this espionage and IP transfer takes, what I think we're going to see is a globalization where people are trading with each other across borders, but they're not working inside each other's borders, uh, building their own mm. businesses. So it becomes a bit more of an arm's length globalization and, um, and a warier globalization. There was a long time, you know, Fonterra has had two attempts to go into China and both times it said they're joint ventures. Speaking of, speaking of high secu- high secu- top security, you know, cow-based uh, dominance. Oh, well, you know, um, what's interesting about Fonterra is they have wasted or spent a couple of billion dollars uh, in two joint ventures, both of which have been, uh, um, some would say, ransacked. Um, and uh, now Fonterra is a lot more at arm's length with China and its own shareholders have basically told them, don't do that again. Don't be starting farmers, farms inside China and buying brands in China because um, you'll get done over again. And I think that's the sort of interesting mm. implication uh, there, Robert, is that yes, um, China does want to trade with the rest of the world, but what it says is this increasing overlap where Western country companies have operations inside China and vice versa is going to be pulled apart a little bit. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think that also these joint statements is warning the Western world not to have any illusions mm. about China's role in the world. It's also sending a message to those Chinese, some of those modernizers within the, the system modernizers, they're called within the Chinese ruling communist party is saying, if you're really serious about becoming improving your economic performance and keep growing uh, and, and closing those gaps as you see them maybe you should rethink your strategy because cyber espionage will effectively undermine your economic performance because we know what you're doing and we're strong enough to block it yeah it's very interesting it's, uh, one of the most interesting um, economics or business stories i saw this week was the was the dominance, in fact, the rise of BYD, a Chinese electric car company, electric battery company, that um, Warren Buffett was one of the first people to identify. BYD stands for Build Your Dreams. I don't think I ever would have bought a, a, B, a BYD if I knew that what, what it meant. But um, its electric car uh, production dramatically exceeded Tesla. You know, Tesla was, I think, something like 350,000 in the, in, the, in the quarter. This is half a million. So, and of course, this whole change in the production of cars from the internal combustion engine into just a kind of electric, a, a battery on wheels, as it were, with a, with a, a software-driven interior and software, and software that's controlling everything, is an entirely new way for China to push into one of the great industries of car manufacture. And Peter, are these vehicles uh, very, they're quite low priced as well, aren't they? Some of them, some of them are, yes, although there was a potential, <laughs> there was a very, not BYD, but yes, yeah, some of them are, many of the, I, I'm pretty sure, so in London, most of the electric buses are BYD buses, I'm, I'm not oh, sure whether right. they are here, um, so they also do a lot of commercial vehicles, but there is a <laughs> Evergrande, which Bernard knows very well, the oh, property yeah. company is, uh, has, has created an Evergrande uh, SUV, electric SUV, which it's selling for something like $26,000, which is $20,000 less than a um, than, than the equivalent Tesla. But I, I'm not sure I'd go around on an Evergrande either, would I, Bernard? No. Oh, but but they, or, one of the ideas was that they would be doing doing apartment and car deals simultaneously, which, yeah, is, yeah. A, which is an idea of combined kind of, um, you know, vertical integration that I thought was quite ridiculous. Yeah. No, no. They, they've got like a million apartments that they need mm. to sell. And maybe you get like three apartments with each car. Um, and uh, and also um, uh, there is the potential there for um, uh, Evergrande to try to turn itself into a car company from a um, fairly bombed out um, development company. Just uh, one thing I, I wanted to ask uh, Robert before we finish off um, and move into the um, uh, housing, housing, you know, yeah. the housing, housing and interest rate story. Um, Robert, uh, next week we've got the Pacific Islands Forum. Mm. And, um, you know, the, the Chinese uh, push into the Pacific in recent months is a hot topic. Uh, 
by the way, I thought it was interesting the Prime Minister didn't didn't mention the Pacific Blue Partnership, which um, yeah. we signed up to signed up to a few weeks ago, and she hasn't spoken about. But uh, how do you think the Pacific Islands Forum is going to go? There seems to be a lot of prior consultation between the Australian Prime Minister and our Prime Minister about the Pacific Islands Forum, mm. and um, I, and the, the other noises coming out of Wellington have been that we need we have to accept that china is not a newcomer to the pacific it has been around for a while obviously it stepped up its interest and we and we as a country have expressed our concern about that particularly in relation to the solomons but i think i, I think the focus at the pacific islands forum from australia and new zealand will be uh trying to address those issues which will increase the resilience of pacific island states in what they think is a major challenge from China. In other words, these are sovereign states, to use the Prime Minister's terms, and we need to take that on board. And uh, if we are not seen to be responsive to their needs, then they, as sovereign states, they will look to states that are. And so I think there is an attempt now to put together things like uh, uh, initiatives which will address concerns about climate change that many Pacific Island states have, and I think the whole strategy now is to build up resilience uh, within Pacific Island states so they can make choices in an informed way and don't feel that they have to rely on China. And by the way, when the Chinese foreign minister did his quick run through the Pacific Island states, apparently it didn't go down very well. And um, that in itself, um, particularly not allowing questions, it pattern took the Fijians back and many other countries which hosted the foreign minister so you know in a sense um i think the pacific islands forum is a major um, you know it, it is a major um development in our foreign policy calendar and uh, i think australia and new zealand are clearly taking it very seriously and um and not seeking to contain china but to become more competitive in that region in relation to china and uh, just a final question here from one of our um uh, our participants, Pat Clark, who's asking about um, how the political situation in the US, where Biden is behind in the polls, and mm. at the moment it looks like the Democrats will lose a good chunk of the uh, Congress and maybe lose a bit in the Senate, how China uh, might um, change its attitude about Taiwan if we're going to see losses for Biden in the midterms, and then maybe some sort of credible uh, Republican candidate or God help us, Trump in 2024. Well, yes, and it does, it clearly shows, I mean, their concern, the reason we're concerned about the midterms is because it could have major foreign policy reverberations, um, not just in relation to China, but also in relation to Russia. Russian commentators are excitedly rubbing their hands in anticipation uh, that the Republicans will win significantly in the midterms. I'm just wondering if the overturning of Roe v. Wade will make any difference in the United States. Um, there's a lot of frustration about gun control, but it's been there a long time. Um, yeah, America seems very polarized at the moment. Um, yeah, it, 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 at the moment, it doesn't look good for the Democrats. And uh, um, yeah, a bit, the one thing we do know um, is that uh, politics can turn around quite rapidly. And uh, th there is this sort of drip, drip investigation into Mr. Trump um, on the, the events of this January the 6th. And that's, I think, made a few Republicans uh, quite mm. sceptical about re whether uh, Trump is really credible for another challenge in 2024. And I thought it was interesting that Ron DeSantis, the um, Florida uh, governor, has been clearly manoeuvring himself to um, jump into Trump's shoes if Trump's... Um, oh, yeah. And Trump... I don't think there's any love lost between those two now. No. And uh, <laughs> mind you, DeSantis's COVID record um, is pretty oh. appalling. But there yeah. you go. That doesn't yeah. seem to get in the way of political... Well, that is, that is the, one of the... One of, just to go back for one, one second to, to, to Boris Johnson, and I, I want to raise Abe again as well. But um, a, a, apart from the amusing headline that I saw that it was, that it was a coup de twat 
in um, against <laughs> against John, Johnson. I mean, it, he's, it's being said that he, he got all the big calls right, including COVID. And I can tell you that COVID was a fucking disaster in the in the United Kingdom. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, they did produce you know the AstraZeneca vaccine in record in record time, and they rolled out vaccine. But this idea that Boris Johnson got the big decisions right is uh, bollocks. Is the is the professional word for that? I mean, he did he did deliver Brexit. But it's a Brexit that's proven to be totally unworkable, uh, and and well, which may end up destroying the Northern Ireland Agreement. So you know, I, I think the, the legacy is not totally brilliant. No, you mentioned Abe, Peter. Um, yeah, just uh, Julian Springer asked whether we knew any more about about the motivation, and and at the. The, the beginning, I said that were perhaps one of, and it's total speculation, that it might have been his uh, move to, to to shore up the Japanese um, uh, military machine. It, it's also just as what just as well likely to be just somebody who's a little bit of a crazy. But Royce is very. We don't know yet. Uh, we do know that he's gone into cardiac arrest apparently after that after the initial initially maintaining his consciousness. But the Royce is very helpfully um, and and in the kind of work that Bernard and I used to do has said that the in two thousand and seven. The mayor, this is in terms of the history of these kinds of attacks. 2007, the mayor of Nagasaki was shot and killed by a Yakuza gangster, handy. Uh, and in 1960, the head of the Japanese Socialist Party was assassinated during a speech by a right wing youth with a samurai sword. Yikes. Which yeah. Is, you know, it's entirely it's, appropriate. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a very rare event. Quite a world mm. we live in. Um, Robert, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Lovely to see you. And um, a big week, as they say, in uh, the world of geopolitics in New Zealand's um, plenty of action on the New Zealand front too. So thank you very much for coming in. I yeah, want thank to, you, Robert. Thank you. I, by all means, stay on to, to, to listen to housing and other bollocks. Oh, yeah, no, I'd like to listen to housing. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I promise to say nothing. Yeah, right. good. good. And in the second half, other bollocks part of the show, uh, we, we have um, an interview that I did earlier this afternoon with the uh, economist from ANZ, Finn Robertson. And I wanted to jump into this because you did a really interesting paper on this completely weird situation we're in at the moment where we have unemployment at 3.2%, a record low. If you haven't got a job now and you're not able to ask for a pay rise, then um, you're in a pretty tough position. And for most New Zealanders, they're actually making more household income growth than even the costs that are rising from fuel and uh, food and the likes. So Finn Robinson has done a, a really deep dive into this weird thing where consumer confidence is not even at record lows, it's catastrophic lows. So even though we've all got jobs and we're making plenty of income, and we've had a better COVID than most people in the world, we're actually feeling really, really depressed about ourselves about as consumers and about what we're going to do in the next um, five years in terms of spending. So what I'm going to do here is um, walk a tightrope of, of trying to share the screen here. Let's get the producer to fire it up, Bernard. The producer is about to fire it up, um, and that producer is me. So here's the interview I did with Finn Robinson. Well, Finn Robinson from ANZ is with us. Finn, could you tell us what is going on with consumer and business confidence? Yeah, well, it's, it's a bit of an interesting one at the moment. We're seeing consumer and businesses are pretty much as pessimistic as they've ever been. And it's a little bit hard to sort of reconcile with some of that hard data that we look at. Because when you look at things like the unemployment rate, we're at a record low, at least in the recorded data, which goes back to the 1980s. And yet consumers are telling us, actually, we're miserable, we're not happy. And importantly, they don't expect things to get better. So the forward-looking indicators in our consumer survey, they basically say, we think things are bad and they're going to stay bad for at least the next five years. And, and so, you know, we're looking at that and we're thinking, well, why is this? And we've done a bit of a bit of a look into that. And when we look at consumers specifically, it looks like there's a combination of, obviously, Omicron is still a big issue, uh, but also the, the cost of living as well is, is a huge problem. And, and, you know, we've seen inflation rise quite steeply. It's at 6.9% at the moment. Uh, it's probably going to increase a little bit from there. Uh, and so that's really biting into household incomes and real wage growth has been negative for quite a few quarters now. So even though on the surface, it looks like a great time to be a worker, a great time to, to, be, to be, you know, earning the wage. When you look at what, what's actually going on with cost of living, it's sort of eroding that benefit for a lot of people who have never been through inflation like this, including myself. It's sort of, uh, it's, it's quite a, a hard thing to deal with. And I think that's one big reason why we're seeing such low confidence. And then, of course, high inflation means high interest rates to try and deal with that. And that's only compounding the pain. Yeah, I, 
I thought it would be useful to go to the charts. It's a bit like in The Godfather, let's go to the mattresses. Well, let's go to the charts. And um, there is um, uh, one particular chart which shows consumer confidence and annual change in unemployment, which, uh, as you'd expect, um, shows uh, that for almost all of the period, it's quite a close connection. If you think you're going to lose your job or your neighbors lost their jobs, you're not going to be happy. But what we have here is this massive disconnect between uh, our annual change in unemployment, i.e. how tight is the labor market, and consumer confidence. Can you explain what's going on there? It's the most startling thing I've ever seen in a chart. Yeah, it's, it's quite something. I mean, obviously, correlation is not causation, but it's, you know, 40 years of data where unemployment and, and consumer confidence are sort of going hand in hand. Um, I think, you know, it's a big part of it is really just the, the stress the households are under at the moment. So, yes, incomes are doing really, really well in nominal terms. They're growing at the fastest rate since 2009, but inflation is really strong. That's eating into people's disposable incomes. Interest rates are rising. And there's a lot of people who fixed on their mortgage rates back in 2021. We're about a year from when mortgage rates reached their lowest point. And so there's a lot of people rolling onto mortgage rates that are you know often double or more and what they locked into. So there's a lot of factors there that are eating away at people, at people's uh, purchasing power, their disposable income. Uh, and and that, that's quite hard to deal with at the same time as inflation is really concentrated in some of those key parts of the consumption basket. You know, your transport, your food, and your housing. Those are the, the three biggest drivers of inflation right now. And those are non-negotiables. So it's quite a challenge for households. And that's why at least that's our, our understanding for why you know, unemployment is so low and yet consumers tell us that they are just miserable. And yeah, it, it's really just a reflection of the tough time consumers are going through. Yeah, um, I'm always curious too, when I look at the um, numbers showing how much homeowners are having to pay out of their disposable income to service their mortgage. And I know it's a very broad figure and it's right across the market and includes all of those you know, old people who've almost paid off their mortgage and that sort of thing. But it shows that, you know, significantly less than 6% of disposable income is spent by homeowners servicing their mortgages, which is less than half what it was in 2007-8 because of lower interest rates. And obviously over that time, there's been some rise in incomes as well. So are people really that stressed in a wide sense? Or is it just, you know, maybe you and me a few mates who bought houses last year. I don't know. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a really important point to make, which is that um, you know, debt servicing, while it definitely matters and it has got more expensive, it is only a part of, of what people spend their money on. Uh, and you know, until very recently, that had been trending down on average for most people because you know a lot of people who maybe fixed three or four years ago were still paying higher interest rates. Uh, I think yeah, we're pretty optimistic about consumers ability to get through this you know we're not forecasting people to be forced to sell their houses to be you know um in that kind of situation people are in a really good place in the labor market their wages are growing sharply and that does put them in a good position to be able to meet the, these higher mortgage payments uh, which is why it's not our only sort of the only driver we're thinking about we're also thinking about the fact that the rest of the consumer basket the rest of inflation everything else you spend your money on that's also going up in price and that's really where a lot of the pain comes through and for lower income households those those three essentials we talked about food housing and transport they make up such a big proportion of consumption that when those go up in price that's the real issue so you know of course interest rates going up are challenging and especially for people who bought at the peak last year uh, we're pretty optimistic the households can get through it but that doesn't mean they're feeling good about it yeah the other curious thing i find is that obviously uh, inflation running at nearly seven percent is higher than hourly wage growth uh, but there's a lot of households who've been working more hours maybe they've been getting some higher overtime payments or some bonuses or uh, maybe some income from other places apart from wages which means that my um, assessment of the overall total household income in dollar terms is that actually you know a total household incomes are actually rising a little bit faster than consumer price inflation so that for a lot of households per hour you're right there as your charts show the real there is a real wage deflationary shock going on but for total household income 
no, it's not quite as bad as it might feel. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's a good point to make is, you know, if you're working a set amount of hours per week and your real wages are falling, you can, you know, work and work more, which is, again, not good for your confidence, but it certainly does support your ability to get through it. And we have seen quite a big pickup in, um, in overtime pay as well. So when we look at sort of your average hourly earnings, those are well behind inflation. But then when you look at the, um, the part of that which captures bonus payments or, or you know, additional payments to usual, those are actually catching up pretty, pretty fast. And that's, that's been a, a trend around the world. Uh, so there's definitely there's definitely some catch up going on. It just sort of takes a bit longer for it to come through into your sort of normal wage setting behavior. Um, so yeah, I, I think yeah, households. It's not it's not the end of the world. That's why we're not forecasting a recession. It's just a tough time. Yeah, the other great chart that I loved was um, <clears throat> your Knight's chart, which uh, shows the the uh, correlation between consumer confidence and real household consumption spending, which. Makes sense again. If you're feeling good about the world, you're probably going to spend some money, and vice versa. And uh, what it shows is, you know, some wild swings over the last couple of years, as you'd expect, um, which I'm sure makes everyone nervous when trying to make <laughs> conclusions from data sets. But anyway, uh, it shows that real household consumption spending maybe is not quite as dire as consumer confidence would suggest it is. Is there a bit of a um cognitive dissonance going on here we feel bad but we're still spending a little bit it definitely feels that way i mean when we look at the, the sort of real-time spending data and you know what households are actually spending their money on they're telling us they don't want to spend any money and yet household consumption spending is as high as it's ever been you know some of that might reflect covid but even real sorry um, inflation but even real inflation adjusted household spending is well beyond what it was um pre-COVID. And part of that could just reflect that household balance sheets are in a pretty good place. So when we look at what households have been saving over time during COVID, both here and overseas, there's been a massive increase in how much people are saving out of their incomes, which you know, Kiwis are usually pretty bad at saving, uh, whether that's because we're putting it all on the house or just a bit of a lower earning um, country than a lot of our other um, trading partners. But we've accumulated so, much, so many pandemic savings that actually there's quite a big buffer there which means we can keep spending, even if we're feeling a bit squeezed. And then obviously at some point, wages will start to catch up with inflation. And so, you know, th there's a bit of a disconnect between how happy consumers are feeling or not, uh, and what they're actually spending their money on. The, the risk is that we're misinterpreting it and, and actually consumers are about to pull their heads in and just stop spending. Um, but it's, it's not something that we're forecasting at the moment. Yeah, it's a strange old time where people are earning plenty of money are unlikely to lose their jobs, have money in their savings accounts, but are feeling bad about the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do wonder actually if there's some psychological stuff going on with all the drama around COVID and also, uh, and again, this is um, speculative and, and not um, backed up by a um, peer reviewed um, uh, randomized and controlled trial, but, <laughs> um, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at social media, which makes us angry and unhappy. And and also just the sheer amount of, you know, bad news just is just happening around the world and, and in New Zealand. You do wonder if that's affecting our uh, confidence about the world as consumers. Yeah, yeah, definitely it's a possibility. I mean, I haven't seen it for consumer research, but for, for business confidence, uh, for example, the Reserve Bank's done research looking at uncertainty shocks and how it affects the economy, and they can be quite powerful. So we can almost talk ourselves into uh, having worse economic outcomes just by the sheer barrage of, of negativity or, or volatility, basically. Uh, Finn, thank you very much for coming on and talking about your excellent note. I really appreciate it. Finn Robinson from ANZ. And oh, we're look, back. Now, look here, Bernard. I'm not entirely happy about being replaced for at least 10 minutes of my own bloody <laughs> co-produced <laughs> podcast by, by a talking head video. I mean, impressive uh, that you've got the slides and everything in there. But Jesus Christ, this is supposed to, you know, this is this is supposed to be the you know the raw window on our lives. Uh, fair enough. Uh, we'll make sure that um, you get a chance to um, uh, grill Finn next time. <laughs> next time, he'll appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> And um, no, I thought it was just interesting to pull it out there. We've got a lot. No, I think of... it's extreme. I think it's extremely interesting, and, and I, I, I was impressed that our producer managed to get all the charts to show up as well. 
Wow. Or uh, not, that's, as the or case not, Or not, yeah. yeah. Um, there, that was a bit of an experiment. Um, you can see inside the machine of the kaka very often. <laughs> and that's part of the appeal, I think. Uh, and and um, we'll keep doing it as, as long as people um, uh, come on. Uh, the reason I wanted to sort of pivot to the local political economy is that this week has been a really interesting week for the outlook for inflation and interest rates everywhere in the world, but particularly here, we've had ANZ, BNZ, Westpac and ASB all cut their two-year fixed mortgage rates. Now, that may surprise a lot of people because all we've been hearing in the news is, you know, reserve banks putting up interest rates, inflation's out of control, interest rates are going up, are they falling? But actually, in the last three or four weeks, we've seen commodity prices fall back towards pre-war levels. So copper price has dropped sharply, uh, a lot of other metals. We've also seen the wheat and rice and soybean prices. Oil, um, oil down to $100. Or, yeah, in fact, Brent dropped briefly under $100 a barrel. Mm. And this is really surprising a few people. And the reason is, of course, that the, the shock of these higher prices has has created demand destruction. I, we drive into the service station and we look at the $3.90 a litre or whatever it is and we go, ah, we're only going to have half a, half a tank of gas. And then suddenly demand drops and therefore the price starts dropping as well. And all around the world, it's pretty clear this demand destruction and the sharp rise in uh, wholesale and retail interest rates for a lot of uh, home buyers and businesses uh, has has slowed down the economy. So it's sort of doing the work that the central banks were hoping to do. And it means now that uh, in the longer run, people are, are not expecting the central banks to have to put up interest rates quite so high. So actually, you know, we've seen a few people start to say that um, it looks like mortgage rates, particularly the longer term ones, not necessarily the floating ones, which are close to the short term, but the longer term ones, one, two, three years out, they have peaked and peaked at around about five and a half percent, which is much lower than some people. Okay, famous last about. words, Bernard. I don't believe that they have, and I will be very interested to throw that back at you in a few months. Oh, that'll be fun. Chocolate fish galore. Um, because I, I think ah. that interest rates so have peaked. So speaking of fish, shall I do the skateboarding dog? Go for it. Oh, you, okay, that's, good segue that's a between segue. chocolate fish. Yeah, please. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's weirdly, it's another Japanese story, which is that. Um, the penguins and otters in a zoo in Kanagawa prefecture in the Hakone in aquarium have had their diets changed from uh, choicest Japanese horse mackerel to a uh, lower form of mackerel and they're turning up their beaks at it, the little buggers. So, you know, I mean, if, if, if we can't, can't afford the right mackerel for our penguins, you know, what is the economy coming to? So this is the Japanese penguins uh, so well, they're not fast... Japanese penguins. I don't think that I mean I, I don't know whether that they, they, they are penguin penguins from from Penguania, uh, but they are. Um, uh, so they're so they're migrants. They're in a zoo. What? They're migrant penguin penguins. Migrant penguins, yeah, the little buggers, and they come they come over here. Don't like our fish, you know. So so maybe they've taken on the Japanese style, which is to be very picky about your fish. Yes, exactly. And well, I don't think they feed them sashimi, but we, as we were saying the other day, I, I imagine penguin sashimi is, is really quite delicious. That would be the sashimi made from penguins rather than the sashimi eaten by penguins. And that is what happens to the penguins if they're too fussy. Maybe they get turned into sashimi. That's right. That's a very, yeah, Bernard, that's a ridiculous digression. <laughs> Oh, that excellent um, uh, skateboarding dog. And of course, we have to finish off with um, some of the fun that happened around Boris. One of the great things about British politics is the crack, the crack you get from the, the commentators and the public, actually. So Hugh Grant, the famous actor, oh, yes. who's now a bit of a political act activist in favour of um, uh, basically shutting down the tabloids, fair enough, um, came out when Boris went and said, right, someone needs to go outside um, number 10 or, or the parliament buildings and play the Benny Hill theme song, you know. And so someone did. And, and so in the background to some of these live crosses that little TV stations are doing is someone playing the Benny Hill theme song, you know. Well, if, one... you saw, if you saw Boris practically shaking poor Jacinda's arm off, you know, he was, do he was doing a, a bloody Benny Hill Oh, I described yeah. him as a pound, pound shop Donald Trump, but he's really a pound shop Benny Hill. 
Ah, dear. And of course, the best video I saw, and this is from Reuters, so um, Peter and I will um, uh, yeah. sympathise with this. Reuters is pretty pretty straight down the line on just about everything. And uh, it's pretty rare for them to try to make a joke. <laughs> but um, there was a little video put out uh, last night while we were all waiting for Boris to decide to leave. Which and all the TV cameras are focused on the number ten doorway, that black shiny doorway, yeah. where nothing's happening, right? So, but you still have to have the live cross focused on number ten, and then Larry the cat turns up at the front door, has a look around, and decides, oh, this is quite interesting. Nice day. I'll just sit on the front steps of number ten for several hours, and eventually the reporters who must have been bored started asking asking Larry the cat, Larry. Have you asked Boris to resign yet? Yeah, but more importantly, have you seen the Larry the Cat eating the pigeon? Ah, no. He's, yeah, so there's, yeah, there's so the, with all with the with everybody in the world watching it, there's a fantastic video of Larry the Cat, cat hunting hunting and um, trying to eat a pigeon just right in front of the um, press pack. So I, I think that was rather good. And of course, Larry gets to stay because Larry's Larry's the Downing Street ah. cat. He's not like Dylan, the stupid. The stupid Boris dog that shits all over Boris's house. So whoever's going to come in in a couple of months' time, we'll have to, you know, have to put Larry. up with Larry. That's right. All right, uh, I need to go, Bernard. It's very kind of you to have done this. I'm, I'm extremely worried that you're going to replace me with some sort of robot from the <laughs> ANZ now. The AI is coming, Peter. Yeah. Thank you very much, everyone. See you, Robert. Bye, everybody. Thank you very much. See Thanks you very much. Bye. 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 Bye.